0: A young 11-year-old Jeffrey did not have a typical summer job like his peers did, such as mowing yards, paper routes, and doing odd jobs for neighbors. Instead, he became a ball boy for the then-Baltimore Colts of the NFL, a job that would last several seasons and one that would transform his life. Flash forward to 2001, a Baltimore sports editor gave him an assignment. The old stadium where the Colts used to play was being torn down, and the former ball boy would have a great angle for the story. Not only did he have a great angle, his project turned into a book three years later. And what was that story about? One of the football players who befriended young Jeffrey was all-pro Joe Erman. The man called the Living Breathing State Park was making a difference the lives of high school football players when the older Jeffrey looked him up. What is true coaching? What is success? What is false masculinity? And what is revolving integrity? You are going to learn the answers to all of these questions and more in this very special conversation with Jeffrey Marks, the author of Season of Life, one of the best books I've read in a very long time. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Bill Campbell was a legendary business coach, and his biographers call him the trillion-dollar coach. If Bill was a trillion-dollar coach, then Bill Ehrman and his friend and fellow coach, Biff Pogey, they've got to be mega, mega trillion-dollar coaches, And if the concept of real coaching matters anything to you, forget the fact that these guys are football coaches. They truly understand the heart and the essence of coaching. And speaking of coaching, you will probably hear the best definition of coaching you've ever heard in this conversation with Jeffrey Marks. Uh, Before Jeffrey wrote Season of Life, he won a Pulitzer at the age of 23, yes, 23 for a series called Playing Above the Rules which exposed cash payoffs to an NCAA basketball team in the 1980s. So before we started talking about the book, Season Alive, I wanted to hear more about this accomplishment.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was a very long time ago. It was 1986, so um, I absolutely felt very differently about it then uh, than I do now. I think then it was just kind of something that happened. It was certainly never anything that um I set out to do or my partner, Mike York. It was nothing we set out to do. It was just something that happened um with the series of articles we had written. And, uh, you know, when you're that age, honestly, I was just trying to keep my job in the newspaper world. I wasn't trying to do anything more than that. I was trying to do good work and hopefully some important stories. But uh, nothing like that was ever on my uh, wish list or my radar, and, and it just happened. Now, being almost 60 years old, uh, 23 then, um, you know, it it feels different. I get to look back and reflect now, and um, I get to think about those things in the rearview mirror, and, and I certainly feel differently about them now than I did then.
0: Season of life. I was, be- before we started recording... I started just going through all of my notes again, and I I don't consider myself a touchy feely person. Ask my wife, thirty-seven years, am I am I the Mister Emotional uh, person? Uh, And I'll answer that question: No. I'm going through these notes, and I'm getting goosebumps. I'm I'm going through some of these quotes that I copied and, and wrote. In one of my journals. This book is special. I loved this book. Season of Life will be not just the best book I've read this year, but probably in a long time. Have you been getting that response uh, from readers?
1: Well, gosh, first of all, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, it's been an incredible journey. Um, here we are. Uh, you know, twenty-one years later, that that story is set in the year two thousand and one. That was a high school football season in Baltimore, and the two men that were coaching that team uh, I focused on to tell their story about what they're doing, and impacting the lives of young people, and and really our our culture overall now with so many things they've done. So, I guess one way to answer that is I never would have guessed in two thousand and one spending a, a season with that high school football team that you know, twenty one years later I'd get to meet you and talk about it. And and that's just that's not normal for any project I've ever worked on. Uh I've done six books and I can certainly tell you it's the only uh book that I'll continue to talk about through through years to come still, I believe. And, you know, that's a that's a great I consider it a gift that I've been given um from the folks who are featured in the book and and those that were willing to open their lives and their journeys to me to be included in that story. So I do think it's incredibly impactful. It means a lot to me, um, but it has nothing to do with me being a writer. It has everything to do with the messages um, shared by Joe and Biff, uh, primarily in that in that book.
0: Tell me if I got this wrong, Jeffrey. As I'm getting halfway through the book, I'm thinking, okay, uh, this is the journey of Coach Joe Ehrman, whom we're going to hear a little bit about in a few minutes, but then I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, especially when I got to the last chapter and we're going to save that. I realize this is not coach Joe Ehrman's journey. He's one of the people you met. This is really a book about your journey. Did I get that right? close yeah you got it
1: right um but it's also a little tricky it was tricky for me too quite honestly it um if you were fooled by it i was fooled by it as well um i never anticipated telling that story overall in the first place as you know from reading the book uh, i won't give it all away but i set out to do something entirely different uh that led to me reconnecting with joe and then spending that season with joe and the boys on that team but you know, I was tricked as well. You know, even once I decided that, uh, I was going to spend some more time up there in Baltimore with them and try to share their story, uh, I never anticipated getting involved the way that I did, uh, on such a personal level. I only figured that I would be an observer, certainly not a participant. And what you're referring to there, I, I consider really that I became a participant in the story primarily the way because Uh, the way that their work impacted my life and my journey and my relationships, specifically the relationship with my dad, which is what you're referring to later in the book. So, yeah, if you were tricked, just uh, be comfortable with that and and know that I was tricked as well.
0: Can we back up a little bit? This did not start out to be a book. You're going to do an article about the old And this is for NFL fans who maybe remember this. Uh, Is it Memorial Stadium in Baltimore about to be torn down? I want you to pick it up from there because I think this was just going to be an article, but it turned out to be a book.
1: That's absolutely right. And if I may, I'll back up even a little more than that. I'll back up to being an 11-year-old boy, uh, spending a summer in Baltimore and meeting the Baltimore Colts as a little kid running around at their training camp. Uh, I had the incredible good fortune, which all these years later, it's impossible for me to even explain how some of these things happen. Um, but I started hanging around with that team at their training camp as a little 11-year-old kid. They kind of took me in and treated me as one of their own. And and uh, as a result of that, I ended up spending years. Uh, my summer job, I ended up uh, living with, working with and traveling with a professional football team, the Baltimore Colts and Joe Ehrman was one of the main guys on that team when I first got to know all of them. So uh, that's the background to the background, if you will. Uh, now fast forward to 2001. That was the summer of 1974, by the way, fast forward to summer of 2001. And, uh, and, and that's when I reconnected with Joe and, and some of those guys that I wrote about in the book. So earlier in the year, I was up in Baltimore to do a story on Memorial Stadium. The stadium was being torn down after all those years of the Colts being gone. They had moved away to Indianapolis. And they were finally going to tear down that stadium in Baltimore. And uh, a friend of mine at the time was the sports editor at the Baltimore Sun, and he was kind enough to give me a little one-day assignment as a former Colts ball boy all those years later to walk through the stadium one last time and write a piece of personal reminiscence, if you will, about that stadium in my days as a Colts ball boy. So got up there on a cold January morning in 2001, walked around the stadium for about an hour and really didn't know at the end of that, what I was going to write about a tired old collection of concrete and brick. I wanted to find the guys that had filled that place with life. And so I ended up my little one day story turned into a three or four month project. I, I came to call it dialing for Colts. And I tried to track down as many of those guys as I could uh, and see what had happened with some of their lives. And, and that's how I reconnected with Joe Ehrman all those years later. And that led me to visit him in, in Baltimore. I found a very different man. Um, at his core, the same heart, the same spirit, the same love for other people. Um, but certainly he was doing different things now. He's no longer long since done with his professional football. He was now a minister in Baltimore. Uh, he ran a program called uh, Building Men for Others, and he was a high school football coach on the side. Uh, the, the the church that he was in was incredible. The program he was running in the city was incredible, but nothing uh, caught my attention the way that coaching of the high school football team did.
0: What was it like going to that stadium that one last time?
1: Oh, wow. It was incredible. Uh, even all these years later, you just asking me about it. Uh, it. It just gives me great feelings because that's, that's much away from home. Uh, that was a very special place for me. Uh, the second you mention that and ask, I think of the click clacking of the cleats on the, on the concrete floor, this dark, uh, tunnel underneath the stadium that led from the locker room out to the playing field. Uh, I think of that, that sound as, as kind of the soundtrack of, of my youth, just hearing those cleats on that concrete told me that we were walking out from the locker room to the stadium and that great things were about to happen. I don't just mean great things on a field of play. I mean great things for a boy and for my growth and for all of those relationships and the fun. I mean, at that age, it was all just fun. I can look back on it now and realize how much I learned by being there and being part of all of that. But the experience of being in that stadium with those men, those, those players and coaches, what they did for me as a boy and as a teenager and as a young man, formulated everything else that I've been able to do in my adult life.
0: Before we start looking inside the pages of this great book, there may be a small elephant in the room. I don't think it is. And and I'll start by saying Erin Callen, and I hope I get her last name correct. She was a former and actually the last CFO for Lehman Brothers. And she's written a marvelous book, and it's geared for women. But I read it, and I thought, no, wait a minute. Every guy should read this book of errands. This book, you could maybe say, is a little bit more geared for us guys. But is it fair to say that women can value from this book, too?
1: Well, that was something I wondered about before it came out. And I'll, I'll never forget a conversation I had with Joe. We were sitting on the school bus one day on the way back from one of the games, and we were just talking about it. This was late in the season, and we were just kind of speculating about different things, the way they would play out with telling of the story and how it might be received or not. And and Joe said to me, uh, I, don't, I don't know what made him think about this, but he said, you know, a lot of women really need this book. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because the book has so much to do with, with redefining masculinity right. in our culture, which maybe we'll get to, but um, I, I was a little confused by what he was saying. There he is running a program called Building Men for Other Building Men for Others. Uh there's so much in his work about redefining masculinity in our culture, and he brought this up. And he said, You watch, there will be just as many girls and women that read this book. And over time, I came to realize once the book was out and I started hearing from just as many girls and women uh, emails and letters and through the website and speaking engagements, whatever the case may be. It was so much from and I came to realize, well, girls and women are the ones that have to deal with us knuckleheads. And uh, and so I, I heard so many comments from girls about their sisters, about their brothers, about their dads, about their boyfriends all of those relationship pieces. And then uh, this one kind of made me laugh. I heard from an awful lot of moms about uh, raising their boys properly, but I also heard from a, uh, uh, well, if not larger number of wives who wanted to talk to me about raising their husbands properly. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a funny way to put it. I never thought of, of wives as raising their husbands, but I kind of get it too. Uh, especially when you think about that tied into some of the concepts in this book.
0: Well, it's it's later in the book, and you're explaining a very important, critical concept. There, there's a message that we hear from wives. You know, our husbands don't have a lot of close male friends, and I thought, yeah, the, the, they're going to love this book uh, for for reasons you just stated. As as I was as I finished the book, I stepped back and one of the first things I do, especially with nonfiction, I want to know who are the main cast of characters. And there's actually several, but I picked three. And let we've already talked a little bit about Coach Erman. Just what's the skinny? What's what's his short story? This guy is I would like, if I could be one tenth of him or one, I'd be a great person.
1: Well, Joe, he grew up in Buffalo, New York, and uh, ended up being a a big time football player, lacrosse as well. But he ended up going to Syracuse University, where he was an All American defensive lineman, ended up being a uh, first round pick in the 1973 draft for the Baltimore Colts. And uh, went on to a really good career with the Colts. That was a time, uh, for some of you who may follow football or know about its history, it was just after John Unitas had left the Colts. And this team was what I would refer to as the Burt Jones Colts. He was the starter back for the team at that time and uh, NFL's MVP player a couple years later. But Joe, as much as Burt Jones was the star of that offense, Joe was one of the stars of the defense. Uh, he was an all-pro, ended up being an all-pro in the NFL. and uh, But he was also, in addition to being a great player, uh, Joe was a real, you know, he, he was a 1970s party guy, too. So uh, if you wanted to know, for example, uh, where the team party was or the poker game or anything like that, you know, Joe was the guy to check with because he was always kind of getting things together. He was always reaching out to pull other people in. I was incredibly fortunate as a little kid to be someone that Joe pulled in and included in so many things. But after his career, well, during his career, uh actually, he had the turning point in his life uh, was he lost his little brother, Billy, uh, to a blood cancer called aplastic anemia. And uh that was a real uh, Joe was. At the height of his career, he thought everything in the world was just couldn't be any better. And then he all of a sudden goes through this process. His only brother, they were extremely close. And Joe spent so much time with him in those final days and months, really, uh, at, at the hospital there in Baltimore. And and it changed Joe's life. And, and it led to him uh, going to seminary during the off seasons. He wanted to find out uh, more about what real meaning he could find in this world. Uh, after going this uh, deep, deep exploratory journey, uh, look inside uh, after losing his younger brother. And uh, this led to Joe, as i as I mentioned, becoming a minister in the city of Baltimore. Uh, he started an inner city ministry called The Door uh, and was very involved with that for years uh, before he got involved with some of these other programs and then moved to a large church. Uh, Grace Fellowship Church in Baltimore with about 4,000 members. And he was very involved there for years. Uh, Then he also ran a program called Mission Baltimore, which was all about racial reconciliation in the city of Baltimore, a city that desperately needs help and hope, as many of our cities do in that area. So Joe is one of these guys, I would refer to him Uh, After his football years, he was already so well-known in that area, in Baltimore and Maryland overall. But over time, I would say he almost became like a living, breathing state park. You know, the guy had done so much for so many for so long that everyone felt and feels like they own a little piece of Joe uh, because he's given out so much of himself through the years. I guess that would be kind of the, the way that I would describe him Uh in a short amount of time, if we can consider what I just did a short amount of time.
0: Early in the book, you talk about going up on a hill past one of the end zones. It's halftime and coach is telling the kids, and I'm not, I'm going to let you say it. He's telling the kids, what's our job, but this is Joe talking. Can, can you, can you share that?
1: Yeah. And, and this is something they did on a regular basis. It was, it was part of their day. Joe and Biff. So Joe was the defensive coordinator of that team, Gilman School, and where they where they ran this Building Men for Others program that I observed. And Biff Pogey was the head coach. So it could be Biff or Joe uh leading this. Either way, it happened all the time, pretty much every day. In fact, the first time I saw it was that August morning when I drove up to the school, and it's the first time I saw the team at all. And the very first words I heard, it was Biff Pogey, the head coach, standing before that team, in the end zone, in the grass at one end of the field, probably about 100 boys, maybe 90 to 100 boys, including varsity and junior varsity football players. And, uh, and behind Biff, there were probably six or eight assistant coaches, including Joe. And Biff yells out to those boys, very first words of the whole season for them of the preseason, what is our job? Meaning the coaches and the boys yell back in unison to love us. What is your job? And they yell back to love each other. Now, keeping in mind, that was the first time I saw any of this and the first time I had met Biff and met any of these kids or other coaches on the team other than Joe, I thought this was about the strangest thing I'd ever seen. And I wondered why I wasted my time going up there. I mean, this was pretty strange stuff. I'd been around sports a lot in my life and I'd certainly never seen anything like this on any level. But I came to realize as time went on uh, that this was really the signature exchange and it represented so well, it represented everything that that whole program is about.
0: I was going to say more than a chant. I mean, they really, not only did they believe it, that's the way they acted.
1: Well, it was said with great passion. It wasn't just, I mean, it, it's something they were so used to doing and yet it wasn't just a matter of fact thing. They, it, there was a lot of feeling in there.
0: So Biff, and by the way, I've looked at some video of Biff, uh, would not want to run into him on a football field, uh, e- even though he's older at, at this. And I think now he's with—is he still with Michigan? Is he one of the lineman coaches? I know. Right. I, right. So one thing I know about Biff, and I don't know if it came up in the book, but he's a former hedge fund manager. So I think he did well uh, in business, but now he's coaching. Tell us a little bit more about Biff.
1: Yeah, well, Biff, again, I just met him for the first time in that 2001 season. So I got to know Biff and his wife, Amy, incredibly kind people. Biff is one of these guys that, uh, you know, if you watch him on a football field, you would never know the kind of business success he had had. And if you saw him interacting in business, you would never think of him as being a guy down in the trenches on a high school football field. So it's always kind of funny, but you know, the one thing Biff um, leads with his heart more than anything else, he, he's one of the kindest, most giving, most passionate, caring human beings I've ever met. And I consider it an incredible gift that he and Amy welcomed me into their lives at that point and allowed me to document this story because, you know, there's so many pieces to that. There's, there's the relationship, there's Biff himself, there's the relationship between Biff and Joe, which is a, an incredible relationship to be modeled for those high school boys. And then there's the relationship between Biff and the kids on the team, which was also amazing to see, to watch those develop uh, and grow as the seasons go on. And, you know, Biff has impacted an incredible number of lives, what he's done for uh, young boys and their families. You know, it's really neat now all these years later, keeping in mind that it's 21 years later. so some of those boys that were 17 and 18 on that team are now what 38 and 39 and have families of their own. So, you know, being able to keep up with some of them through the years and watch them now on the other side of that equation, instead of Biff building into their lives, now seeing them take those same lessons all these years later and build into the lives of others. That to me is a magical thing. It's really powerful. And that is all, a tribute to Biff and Joe. So I consider, uh, we often hear with NFL coaches, usually some college coaches as well, you hear about coaching trees through the years. So famous coaches who then have assistant coaches who go on to be head coaches elsewhere. And they call that the coaching tree of X, Y, or Z. And, you know, so if we look at that in terms of life and and a coaching tree, and what Joe and Biff have, have built into these lives, their coaching trees at this point are absolutely incredible.
0: That That is so amazing to, to hear. And speaking of the kids, what would these kids say today about their coaches 20 plus years later?
1: Oh, gosh. The main thing I hear them saying all the time is thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, the most important thing a coach can do has nothing to do with points on a scoreboard. It has nothing to do with league championships, state titles or MVP trophies or any of that stuff. It all has to do with what they're building into those young people's lives. If I may, I'll go back for a second. Even just that word coach, uh, you know, goes all the way back to the 1500s in the English language. This is awesome. And, uh, well, it's just, it's one of these things that really hit me as I was working on this project. So if you look at what a coach initially meant in the English language in England a coach was defined as a horse-drawn carriage. But it wasn't just any old carriage. It had a specific purpose attached to it. And that purpose was to convey or transport a person of importance from where he or she is to where he or she wants to be, needs to be, or ought to be going. And so that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're taking our most important people, our young people, In in this case, the boys on a high school football team from where they are to where they want to be, need to be or ought to be going. So if you if you use that definition of the word coach all these years later, then these are the greatest coaches in the world.
0: We'll be right back. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Coach Jeffrey, you know this story well. Could you also define the word success and how it plays into? the word coach that you just so incredibly well-defined uh, that term? Well,
1: years ago, I was working on a different project when I lived in Washington, D.C., and and I used to work over at the library called the Library of Congress, which was right down the street from me. It was the greatest place in the world to do research. And I had this idea once I was working on a piece about success in our culture. And I thought, well, how has that changed over the years? So I had this weird idea I love research, and I had this strange idea one day. I'm going to walk over to the library and see if I can find what what what's the oldest oldest dictionary I can find, and how does it define success? Well, after hours over there, uh, which only a, a nutcase uh, writer slash researcher would do, but I found the first Webster's dictionary that was published in the year 1806. And I was so excited about that. And I looked up what it meant to be successful in 1806. And it was defined by only four words. And those four words were prosperous, fortunate, happy, and kind. Think about that for a minute. Prosperous, kind. fortunate, happy, and kind. kind. So that was shocking to me. Um, I don't think that you're going to find the word kind, anywhere near the, the definition of success in our culture today, unfortunately, at least not in the written dictionary. So what happened to it? You know, when was it excised? Why? And what have we done as a culture to replace it? So in this journey, since the book came out through these years, when I go out and, and work with different groups and schools and, and corporations, I'm, I'm often asked about what is, what is a successful coach? What does it mean? And so all those years later, I had the chance to put these two together. And that's kind of the definition I use. I put those two together. And to me, that's what forms a successful coach. That's whether it's in in sports, whether it's in business, whether it's in life, whether it's in a community group, whatever the case may be, it's really all the same because it's really all about impacting the lives of others.
0: I want to stick with these kids just for a minute. I think it's chapter 14 was one of the most moving chapters in the book. I'm just going to give you one line and you'll know what I'm talking about. Because I I don't know when was the last time you read your own book. Because I've heard some authors almost say, almost word for word, I'm sick of this book. (laughs) Because they've talked about it so much. (laughs) And so hopefully you'll remember this. I'll give you a hint, Napoleon. Napoleon. He gets on the phone and says, Coach, and he's biff. Coach, I'm going to need you here. Oh yeah. And can you bring Coach Urman? I just had to stop. That that was so sad. But I'm mm. so it's such it's such a small short line of a few words. I'm glad you put it in there. Because that told me a lot about the relationship between the co- the kids and the coaches. I just I just think this is an important aspect of that relationship you were talking about a few minutes ago. So that that relationship it wasn't just about on the field, but off the field as well.
1: Yeah, well, you just literally gave me chills. I'm not saying the figuratively type I'm talking about the type that I actually just felt on my arms when you shared that. And the reason why is because I have, I just, I love those guys and I love Napoleon. And and I remember so well, even though it was long time ago. Now I remember Napoleon going through that tough, tough experience. He lost what you're referring to. His best friend, uh, was killed, uh, in, in a, in an accident was, uh, in a car hit by a drunk driver, unfortunately. And, uh, you know it was a tough 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 time for napoleon um what what the senior referring to napoleon also just a beautiful young guy mm-hmm. and uh and now an incredible father and husband and coach of a high school football team and uh napoleon's whole journey i i think he would be the first one to tell you everything changed in his life because of being around those two coaches joe and biff Specifically, what you're referring to—the scene where he was in the hospital um, when his friend was in the intensive care unit and, and needed his coaches there to be with him to get through that—and uh, they really did. They, I don't know, I don't honestly don't know. I know Napoleon would have gotten through that, but it would have been a very different experience for him without those men to support him through it. And I watched Napoleon go through that as as a high school kid uh i've watched napoleon go through so many things through the years and it's really neat that you brought him up because he's one of the guys who i've stayed in the closest contact with through the years and i have so much respect for napoleon and uh what he's done already in in this world and will continue to do he's the perfect example of what i referred to earlier about a coaching tree um he is taking so many of those same concepts and now teaching them not only in his family and his community, but also to a high school football team. And it's, just a beautiful thing to me to, to see that unfold through the years.
0: May I read one more quote up from the book? Uh, this, th- there, there's a business parallel to what I'm about to read in business. We have what's called huddles, daily huddles, weekly huddles. We have financial huddles, where we share financial statements with the entire staff, uh, the, the, the mm-hmm. entire employees. So, Mike Dowling talks about the huddle. He says, I love the huddle. Uh, There's a strong feeling of codependency when you're all in there together. There's nothing like it in any other sport I've played. You don't have to pretend in the huddle. You don't have to cling to any false pretenses. Even the shape of it, it's perfect. I can almost hear him saying it now. A, A tightly wound circle. Everybody has their own ambitions, their own wants. Oh, we all share the same desire too. You can just look in everyone's eyes and see that. And once you realize how much everyone else wants it, that makes you want it even more. As a high school kid, there's not a CEO who could use those words to define a huddle. These are sharp, amazing young men. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, Mike, Mike, especially so. You, you happen to pick another really incredible young guy who now is a a, a very uh, thoughtful, brilliant uh, lawyer who uh, represents uh, a lot of important values, not only within his family but in his community. Uh, Mike, I, I chuckle you bring up Mike. Mike went through some difficult times as a young guy in high school, his teenage years, some tough stuff in his family that I know he was working on overcoming. Um, but just deep, introspective, brilliant student, heck of a football player, ended up playing at Duke University where, uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, he became the player on the Duke University football team with the highest GPA, which is, you know probably a few guys on that team that have some pretty decent uh, academic records. And, and it, I, I remember Mike didn't tell me that, but we heard it through the grapevine and, and uh, uh, through the school and when, when I was doing some later research. And, and when I asked Mike about it when he was still at Duke, he was almost embarrassed by it uh, that I had found that out. But uh, certainly nothing to be embarrassed by. He He is a deep thinker uh extremely smart unbelievably caring sensitive uh again just one of these guys it, it I, I'm just enjoying this so much cuz you happen to bring up two of my favorite guys in the book uh and and two of the most powerful uh scenes and passages because Mike and Mike Dowling who you mentioned uh Napoleon there were a few others um that I've kept up with but uh my wife Leslie and I got to go to Mike's wedding uh, years later and and there again, you know, that's just not normal for, uh, you know, when you go work on a project as a writer, you don't generally have those types of things carry through the years, but that's just the way these guys are. Um, those are the relationships that were formed. I was just an outsider observing, but as I say, almost felt like a participant and really included by the time it was done. So that, that too has been an incredible, you know, when I was younger, I, I wrote, stories, because that's what I did to earn a living. And then later on, it became more about their relationships more than anything else. And that's, again, a perfect example of that.
0: Before we move on, there are two or three big ideas in the book. There's actually a lot, but I pulled out three just for this conversation. I'm asking a leading question, and I know the answer is going to be yes, but I'm going to try to get a really good answer here there is this concept called executive coaching in business. And I'll be blunt. I think some of it's shallow. I think it hits sometimes the wrong definition of a success as we talked about earlier. I'm just going to say that for executive coaches, this is a good playbook to use in their practices. Now, The amateur interviewer can ask a a yes-no question. Do you agree with that? But I'll just end by saying, I think this is a great playbook for executive coaching, not just for coaches on a football field, coaches in other sports, but coaching in business. Feel free to push back if you want to.
1: Well, uh, no, certainly not going to push back. I think I'll just give a big hug and embrace because I, you know, I, for obvious reasons, I agree, but I'm going to speak for a second, if I may, just more about the experience through the years after the book came out. And again, something I never would have anticipated, but being involved in as many, uh, corporate activities as Joe and I have been through the years. So I didn't realize that it was never again, never a goal of telling this story. Um, but it's certainly one of the outcomes is we've done a a ton of work through the years with companies and with corporate leaders. Um, and it's been, again, just one of these, um, unanticipated, but much, much appreciated, uh, gifts that we've received through the years is being able able to participate in so many of those meaningful endeavors that others are taking on and that, that they've thought enough of this, of of Joe's program in this book to include them in what they're doing. So yeah, that's been neat. That's been one of the ripple effects and uh, it's really been, it's been pretty powerful to watch that unfold.
0: On the big ideas in this book, I've, I've, there's at least a dozen or so, at least from my notes. So I thought, well, I've got to, I got to whittle this down. I get it down to about nine, get it down about six. And it's still unfair to chop stuff out. But I've come down to three that are special. Just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share the term with you, and just share what comes off the top of your, your head. You don't have to. This is a case where you don't have to go back to the book. But just, what are you thinking when I share these terms? Number one, false masculinity. And I think if any, uh, anyone that's really great at book reviews, they're probably going to say this is one of the top themes in the book. False masculinity
1: well the first word that came to mind when you said that was toxic because it does so much damage in our culture uh false masculinity as defined joe uh has three components to it the first is athletic ability the second is sexual conquest and the third is economic success those happen in that order at a young age it becomes uh boys learn that athletic ability somehow makes them more manly, more masculine. If they can do things better than the other boys on the playground, get a little older and it becomes about what I call the notches in the belt mentality, uh, sexual conquest, getting girls to come around and do what you want to do. Not because there's anything having to do with a healthy relationship. There's nothing better in the world than a healthy relationship, but just considering that uh, a conquest, uh, the, the third piece, economic success, comes at a little later stage in your life when it's all about, you know, what's in your wallet, what's in your bank account, what zip code do you live in, what kind of house, what kind of car do you drive, all of these types of things. And so that that's what Joe and Biff talk about, uh, what they teach the boys and what they talk about so much throughout the course of a season and a year at that school. And it's what I wrote about quite a bit in the book as well. Um they, they, those are all lies. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good athlete. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a relationship. There's nothing wrong with wanting, you know, good success in, in, in terms of your bank account. And there's nothing inherently wrong with driving a nice car or living in a nice house. That's not the point. But if at the end of the day, you're going to measure yourself as a man by those things. Now you're getting into a real problem area. And you're creating a situation where all you're going to ever do is compare what you have with what others have and then compete for them, compete with them for whatever type of prestige and power that supposedly brings in this world. And that's why I said the word toxic. And and again, those are not my ideas. They're not original to me. That's all part of what I learned through this structure that, that Joe and Biff had put together. But I came to see that as being uh, incredibly true and powerful. Uh, And then they replace that with what they call strategic masculinity.
0: There is another term. I really like this one. And this one is, you're not reading between the lines, but it does come up. The term revolving integrity. And that's going to come from Coach Ehrman. I thought that was brilliant. Um,
1: Revolving integrity. Revolving in the sense that you're going to be turned so many ways in this world. You're going to be spun around 360 so many different times and situations and, and environments that you're in. And uh, so many things happen to us, stresses in this world, happy times, good days, bad days, doesn't matter. Whichever way this world spins you, you can't allow that to change who you are at your core and what your beliefs are. And then making sure that you stick with those uh, as you deal with those circumstances of of a given day or a situation. And that's what they mean by revolving integrity. And I love that term, too.
0: There is another term. And again, this is coming from Coach Ehrman. And I'm going to read it to you before I give you, well, it's it's in the quote, so you're going to hear the word. Coach Ehrman says, indifference, the lack of being other-centered. Not enough people taking on any kind of cause beyond themselves. And Coach, I don't know if it's both coaches or mainly Joe saying this, but success is about the impact you'll have on other people down the road and now. Well, the opposite of that is indifference. And that is, to me, another critical pillar, big idea, in this book, I, I would say the opposite of indifference is really that's part of the philosophy of Joe and Biff.
1: Yeah, you put it really well. And and I think that you in those in, in that quote and in what you just shared there, I think you really touched on the two pieces I mentioned just a few moments ago that they replaced that false masculinity with strategic masculinity. And actually, in what you just shared, maybe intentionally, maybe not, but you actually touched on the two pieces to what they would call strategic masculinity, and they are relationships and having a cause beyond yourself. They call it a transcendent cause. That means it's bigger than your own individual hopes, dreams, and desires. It's about touching the lives of others in this world and and putting them before yourself in so many ways. So I think that that's what your quote really ties right into. And so if you're not doing that, then you're not behaving properly, and you're not going to be the kind of man that that those guys want you to be ultimately the kind of man that you want to be yourself. And you're certainly not being a man built for others.
0: We get to the end of the book, last chapter. Not only do I get to the end of the book, get to the last chapter. I reread the last chapter. Is it is that weird or not? I reread the last chapter. I'm not going to give it away. You can say whatever you want to, but there is a, again, it's, it's it's a line from the book, and I wrote it down. You're smothering me. Who said that?
1: Well, that was my dad. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my dad, and I guess the way to describe it is that uh, I was hugging him, and, you know, I'm not going to get into a whole lot about my relationship with my dad, other than to say that I'm incredibly thankful for uh, what happened, what we were able to do uh, with our relationship as a result of everything I learned from spending that season with Joe and Biff. So it was Thanksgiving weekend of 2001. And at that time, I lived in Washington, D.C. Of course, the team was based in Baltimore, so I was spending a lot of time back and forth between D.C. and Baltimore. But my dad, he still lived in New York, where he still lives to this day. And, uh, I was going up there for Thanksgiving weekend and he knew I was coming, but he didn't know what was coming. And, uh, without getting into too much detail here, what was coming was, uh, a strong desire. And that's not even, that's not even saying it the right way. It was required of myself at at, at the point I had reached in life, which I guess I would have been at that point, uh, what, 39 years old, uh, I knew that my relationship with my dad, where it was, although it had been good, it wasn't a bad relationship. I knew there was more that was needed. I needed it to be who I wanted to be as a man. I needed it for uh, my entire life moving forward. I needed to know that we could do something more with our relationship. And and that's what started to unfold that Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving weekend of 2001. Uh, you can notice probably just from my talking and trying to answer this question that I'm not doing quite as well with my words as I have, uh, hopefully a little earlier in our conversation. And that's just because, you know, some of this is still really tough. It's, it's, uh, here's the good news. The good news is because my dad is the way he is, just an incredible, incredible man. Um, Everything from that point to this day, our relationship has been going and growing ever since. I do love that I now get asked about my dad all the time because of that book. And I, I get to tell people that, that um, here we are all these years later. And my dad is 88 years old, doing absolutely great. We speak almost every day, although long distance, I'm in Louisiana where I live now, and he's in New York. But I mean, the, when we are together, it's just incredibly joyful. Uh, when we're on the phone, we have great conversations. We talk about so many things we never would have talked about before. And uh, I guess I can just stop there and say uh, that all ties back to the quote that you shared about smothering him with that hug. That was not very comfortable for him. And that was his way of saying... Um, back
0: off son i thought i thought <laughs> it enough it, for right now i thought it was funny and and the nice thing about this chapter is at the very beginning the opening paragraphs it's like what's i'm i'm asking myself what's going to happen i mean there there can be three scenarios this could either be positive it could be negative or there could be some indifference so y- you don't really let us know until you're you're walking us through this conversation with your father and this is a case where the details that you shared are really important and they're healthy. And I have a feeling the people who haven't read this yet. There could be some people buying another little book that you mentioned uh, in in that last chapter. I I've already have bought it, and I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about. The 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 questions to ask your father. I, I can't remember the exact right. title, but you you mentioned right. that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that was a really helpful tool for me. That was a book that Joe had given me earlier. He thought I might be interested in it when we were talking about my dad. And, you know, Joe again, even in that, uh, in the days leading up to that weekend that I went up to New York to do this, Joe really helped talk me through all of that because there were some really tough things that I knew I had to talk to my dad about and, uh, Joe's encouragement and support. Really helped set me at ease as I went up there, and I say set me at ease. I was not at ease, <laughs> at least um, lessened my anxiety. I, I maybe should put it that way. I want to share one other piece with you about Please. my dad, which I think is Please. incredible, and uh, and it's really it's the real uh, package of courage that I associate with this whole journey that I've been on now since since two thousand and one with this with this season of life journey. Um. So the whole season plays out and then the next year I'm doing a little more research and writing and, and it gets to late 2002, I guess we were even into 2000, no late 2002, because the book was published then in 2003. Um, and I, I took the manuscript to my dad and, you know, here I am, I had worked on this with Joe and with the writing and spending all that time and, but I wasn't fully committed to publishing the book. And I hadn't shared all of it with my dad yet. He knew I was working on a story. He knew kind of what it was about, but I didn't want to give him too much detail along the way because I wanted to hand it to him all at once, let him read the manuscript. And I did that with this uh, request. I said, dad, I want to ask you to read this and be a million percent honest with me because you're going to be the one that has the choice of whether this is ever published or not. I will never publish this book unless you're absolutely comfortable with me doing that. And, uh, he, he read it. Within two days, he called me back. And, uh, man, when I saw it it was his, you know, number coming up on the screen, I was all nervous because I had a feeling this might be the call. And, uh, and it was, and he was so incredibly supportive and uh i'll never forget what he said he said that for him it was some parts of it were extremely difficult to read parts of it were extremely difficult for him to think about but he fully understands why i wrote it the way i did why i felt the way i did and it meant a lot to him and he said this this was the overriding point though the overriding point was that he would never want to stop this from being published because if it is published, maybe somewhere someday there'll be one other father and son who are impacted the same way we were because they now see these concepts and see this one personal story. Well, that really touched me. And uh of course I was also relieved because, you know, now we were going to move forward in a very selfish way. Obviously I was, I was, Hoping that he would say it would be okay, but I was also a hundred percent committed to if he was not comfortable, this was not going to be published. And, and, and it still would have been a great benefit to our lives because we still would have had what we got out of the experience. But because he made that decision, uh, once the book was out and I started getting letters from families, fathers, sons, mothers, um, any of those that had to do with the father son relationship, I always kind of put off in a corner of my desk and saved until I saw my dad. And I always took those to him because I wanted him to read them. I wanted him to know that all of those things were happening in other people's lives because of him. I even had an opportunity once, um, a few years after the book came out at one of my speaking engagements in the New York area, my dad accepted an invitation to come. And, uh, he didn't know I was going to do this. I actually, to be honest, I didn't know I was going to do it either. It just kind of happened at the end. But we were in a large auditorium at a high school uh, in the evening, though. With a com- it was a community group. And uh, I had an opportunity that I wasn't going to let pass because I thought it was about the coolest thing in the world that my dad was there with me to be able to experience this with me. And no one knew he was there. But I knew. And at the end, I introduced my dad to the audience. And to see that audience respond to my dad and share with him the celebration of uh, of his courage and of his participation and of his willingness to allow this story to touch the lives of others, you know, I, I've carried that experience with my dad ever since. And I hope to carry that with me for the rest of my days.
0: Well, one last thing about this book, and I will probably embarrass you. Sorry. In advance but you definitely embody one of the other overriding themes in this book you definitely have a cause beyond yourself i mean i feel like as an author and what you've done since the book came out uh, you are living a life that's well beyond yourself
1: well, thank you. And, and I'll thank you in another way and embarrass you in another way, if I oh, may, which oh boy. is no one, no one listening to this would know, but how we met was just because of your kind words that you shared through, uh, through Twitter, I think is the first yes. time that I saw yes. that come up. And so, you know, that, that really kind of you to want to share those messages with other people and, uh, reach out to me the way you did. And I, I thank you for that. So you're obviously. Uh, in in your world, you have your cause, and probably cause is, and and taking that on and reaching out to someone else on the outside like that is probably part of that too. So thank you.
0: I'm not going to let you off the hook. We ask every single guest this question. This is CFO bookshelf. So, journalist. Once a journalist, always a journalist. So I, I know you're a reader, and and I know there's a difference between research and reading, reading books. But can I ask you, what are some of your favorite books of all time?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, you're correct. I love reading. Uh, In fact, I enjoy reading a lot more than I enjoy writing. (laughs) Reading's a lot easier. Um, Yeah, I've always loved reading. You know, I go back to third grade, uh, Miss Kenny at Ridge Street School in Rybrook, New York. And Miss Kenny, my third grade teacher, was one of the huge impacts on me. Uh, she was so uh, encouraging of the reading habit, as were my parents. And so I've always loved reading. I knew from third grade in Miss Kenny's class that someday I wanted to write a book. And I'll even share with you the embarrassing but true fact that on uh, Halloween night, as a third grader, I even dressed up as a book for Halloween. So, yeah, it's, it's always been a love of mine. At that time, I was reading childhood sports books uh, by a man named Matt Christopher, who was incredibly prolific. And, uh, anyway, some books I've read. Well, I'll give you my two, t- two all time, uh, favorite books. Uh, one is great expectations. Uh, the other is prince of tides, uh, for very different reasons. And it's also interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way till you, till I just gave you that answer, but, uh, I read as an adult, probably 95 percent of the books I read are nonfiction I almost never read fiction uh my wife is just the opposite so we often trade off if she reads one that she really loves and think I will thinks I will as well she'll share it with me and vice versa but uh and I just mentioned to you my two all-time favorite books and they're both fiction so uh although yeah Prince of Tides you've got a lot mixed in there from Pat Conroy's Real Life as well uh, unfortunately for him, but, uh, but I read in the nonfiction, uh, category, I read pretty much anything. I read sports, politics, history, biography. I love, uh, I'm, I'm all over the place. And, and as a, as a writer and a former newspaper guy myself, I, I love stories that are well-researched. You can tell from the detail And I I also love stories that are well told. So, yeah, I read a lot of books, and I love it.
0: Great Expectations is not my favorite. It's in my top ten. It is my favorite. It it is my favorite of Dickens. A Tale of Two Cities, I struggled through that book. But for some reason, I, I I love the beginning, and I love the last chapter in the middle, I just had a hard time, but for whatever reason, great expectations it's it's to me, it's just, it's perfect storytelling. I, I loved it.
1: Well, if I may, so that the, it's so funny the way you said that about Dickens, the first exposure I had to Charles Dickens was reading the book, great expectations in college. And it was part of a literature class I was in and I loved that book. I, I devoured it. I thought it was incredible. Well, I enjoyed it so much that the next year I signed up for an English class that was all Dickens stuff. And I couldn't stand it, like literally almost couldn't make it through the class. I couldn't get through the books. Great Expectations was the only Dickens book that I probably got through the whole. Well, I know I got through. I've read that numerous times through the years. I don't know if I even made it through any of the others. And, and it was just brutal. So I got tricked. But uh it's funny you say that. About the about the dick stuff.
0: So I'm not the only I'm not the only one. Well, this right. is this has been. I don't want to I don't want this to be cliche, but I, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I just I've been looking forward to this. We don't do this with a lot of guests, but we had a, a phone call in advance, and I just thought. This guy is great. Uh, and you're the kind of person to be really cool to you know, to hang out with a coffee or, or lunch. And, and I hope this is not the last time we get to uh, to chat like this.
1: Well, likewise, I, I hope we get to see each other and meet sometime. Uh, just let me know whenever you're in Louisiana, we'll go get a cup of coffee. I'm sure you'll be coming through there any day. So yeah, that would be great. I've enjoyed it too. Again, as I said uh, moments ago, thank you so much for your kind Comments and uh, this has been really enjoyable. I love what what you do with your podcast, and I hope it continues to go great for you.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. The book is Season of Life, the author is Jeffrey Marks, and you can learn more about this very gifted writer jeffreymarks.org. I want to wrap up with five simple questions. Maybe I should say five impactful questions. Number one, what is your definition of a coach and success? You've heard Jeffrey's. What is yours? The definition of coach and success. And I think those two need to be tethered together. What's our job? What's your job? Now you heard that story. What is it in your business? So think about it. What is the job of the leaders in your company? What is the job of those who follow? And again, that's in the context of the story you heard. What's our job? What's your job? Question number three, what is false masculinity in business? Does that question, does it even matter? Question number three. Number four, what is revolving integrity in your own words? And then lastly, number five, Mike Dowling's definition of a huddle was brilliant. What's your definition of a business or financial huddle? Is it similar to Mike's definition? Even when you read this book, Season of Life, I promise you, I guarantee it, it will not be the last time you read it. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.